If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number two for the World According to Zig podcast for this May 14th, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. I laughed about the date because today is actually May 17th, 2018, but we're doing hour number two from our 2000 or May 14th, 2018 uh, podcast because our hour two interview had to be scrapped at the very last moment because of a phone difficulty, which really did not make me happy because uh, we were scheduled to be joined by Amanda Carpenter, who has written a fantastic book called Gaslighting America, Why We Love It When Trump Lies to Us. And Amanda has been gracious enough to reschedule, uh, so we just decided, heck of it, we'll just uh, call this hour number two for our May 14th, 2018 podcast and keep everything simple, even though it's actually May 17th. But regardless of what day it is, uh, really looking forward to a, an extensive interview about the issue of Trump and lying and her book. Joining us now is television commentator and the author of the book, Gaslighting America, Why We Love It When Trump Lies to Us, Amanda Carpenter. Amanda, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Hey, you bet, John. Happy to be here. All right, this is a fantastic book, uh, and the best compliment that I can give to it, uh, although this is going to sound rather egotistical, is that uh, it's very, very rare that I read a book where I go, well, this is a book that uh, I would have liked to have written, and I say to myself, I could not have done this good a job. As oh, well, the, thank you. As, thank as, you. as the person. As a writer, I totally know what you mean, so I take that as a very high compliment. I, I, well, you, you actually should, because I'm not sure I've ever said that about a book that I uh, easily could have written, uh, but you did a fantastic job with this. It's an incredibly important subject, and if nothing else, uh, people who read this book, I think, will uh, feel better in the sense that they'll realize that they are not the ones going insane, that it's everybody else. Have you gotten a lot of that kind of reaction to the book? Yes. I've had some people say, okay, this explains it because I felt like I was going crazy. And I said, yes, that's the point. When you get gaslit, you either go crazy or you succumb completely. And so if there's some fight left in you, you feel a little crazy. All right. Let's talk about what you mean by gaslighting. First of all, let's give the definition of what that means. Gaslighting is when someone undertakes an elaborate scheme to change reality. And so the best way of describing it is if someone walked up to you on the street, and it's a beautiful day, and they say, what color is the sky? And you look up, 
and you say, it's blue. And they say, no, 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 it's green. And you say, no, it's blue. And they say it with such certitude that it is green. You start to wonder, well, what are they seeing? And then they parade out these experts and scientists with study that say, well, under these conditions, it does appear green. And then maybe CNN has a debate panel to debate <laughs> the color of the sky, of whether it's blue or green. And then ultimately, maybe you, because you know the sky is blue, you can see that it's blue, you become hysterical. Look, this is blue. What are you people doing? Are you stupid? And you make yourself appear unhinged. Or the alternative is that you ultimately come to agree that, yes, they all say it's blue, so maybe I'm wrong and I'm just going to be quiet and I'm going to go along with the idea that it's blue. That's gaslighting. And or that it's green. Sorry. Right, I got it. I think we, no, we we got it. The, you see, you even convinced yourself. Uh, you you gaslit yourself there, Amanda. Yeah, I know. Uh, oh, okay, wow. but so let's talk about this uh, in terms of Trump. And in the book, you go through uh, the five stages of gaslighting. So why, why don't you explain what those are? Sure. I think the key to understanding the rise of Trump is looking at how he executed the birtherism campaign against Barack Obama. This explains the five steps that he keeps employing again and again so well that once you learn to identify the steps that Trump takes to gaslight someone, you won't be able to unsee these things. And so we can break it down. The first thing that Trump does is that he finds a politically toxic idea or narrative that forces people to take sides. And it's always something that no one else in their right mind would approach, but does have sort of a cult following, is very powerful. And for Trump, during the Obama years, that was birtherism. Keep in mind, when Trump decided to start pushing birtherism, everyone else had pretty much stopped. That was something that came up during the 2008 campaign with John McCain and Barack Obama, and McCain wouldn't get into it. He famously silenced uh, people at a rally right. who questioned whether Obama was a Muslim. And there was a core support, core base of GOP voters who wanted a Republican candidate who would use that kind of material against Obama. True or not true, they wanted a candidate that would use the dirt. And so Trump knew this. And so he decided, yeah, I'm going to start dabbling in birtherism. And so that's the first step, staking a claim over a narrative. And so he very quickly started doing media interviews. And if you look in those early interviews, you will see that he never came out and said, hey, I'm a birther. Barack Obama is a U.S. citizen. He would very carefully talk about it. He would do an interview on an unrelated topic and then just sort of blurt out, well, do you think there's something to this birtherism stuff? A lot of people are talking about it. I'm not talking about it, but a lot of people are saying. And I call this step advance and deny. He advances a narrative but denies taking any responsibility for it. And he does this constantly. I mean, I'm sure you recognize the words other people are saying. Right. Um, he often references reports on the Internet that are unfounded in this step. He has a lot of tricks fueled by the Internet where he can do this. And then the next thing he does when reporters start to lose interest in the story, story he creates suspense. That's step three, creating suspense. 
he did this by saying, I'm sending investigators to Hawaii. There's a video coming out proving Barack Obama was not a U.S. citizen. And so even media that thought the story was stupid, had lost interest in it, were suddenly enticed to get back into it because now he was promising something. Keep in mind, none of those things ever materialized, but it still keeps the media involved. Right. And at this point, the opponents start coming out, saying Donald Trump is full of it, um, how dare he do this, this is racist, and then he gets to act like the good guy. I call this the discredit the opponent step, where he says, I'm just looking into this. These people, they don't want you to look into this. I'm just raising the questions, and he makes himself out to be the good guy. And at this point, he begins to lose interest in it, and he has to find out a way to win, which is the last step. The last step is always winning. No matter what happens, he will declare victory. Right. And he did this uh, in the summer of 2016 by organizing a huge press conference at the new Trump Hotel uh, to f- make his final statement <laughs> about birtherism. And when he did, he essentially got up and said, uh, Barack Obama's a U.S. citizen, but I didn't start this. I didn't start this. Hillary Clinton did. I finished it. I finished it. And so in that step, he blamed it all on Hillary Clinton, discredited <laughs> the opponent, and declared victory. And so you will see these five steps play out anytime he chooses a target. And I'm not saying he stands at a whiteboard and, like, maps this out. Right. But these are tricks that he's used to keep himself in the media and maintain control over narratives since he was a tabloid king in New York. And all of this stuff works. And so that's what I want people to understand, because I don't want these tactics to work anymore. I think they're very unseemly. But once they're recognized, they become more beatable. All right. Now, you raised so many interesting aspects of the book there. And I do want to talk about birtherism in particular as an example. But first, let me start by asking you something about something you said there at the end of that uh, response, which was you don't think he's at a whiteboard mapping all of this out. How conscious are these five steps and and or maybe is it uh, like this innate savant like ability that he has what how how do you um, evaluate that well i think all this is like breathing to him he is very comfortable going to the media and pushing out wild conspiracy theories while taking no responsibility for it at all uh he does this all the time he is very careful people think that he's unpredictable in what he says but he's always very careful not to box himself in firmly to a position until he's at the very last step. Uh, this is kind of like why he had the statement about both sides in Charlottesville. Um, you know, he wasn't really gaslighting anybody there, but that's something he instinctively does. Well, these guys are some of my supporters, and I don't really want to turn them off completely, so I'm just going to say that there's violence and blame to go all around on both sides. He is always careful. Is there to protect his upside, even even if it's a terrible upside. But you know what? Those are some of his supporters, and he wasn't going to tune them out. And he's, so he's very keen to protect his flank at all times. So he is thinking about this. And, I mean, he must put some planning into it because so far he has not miscalculated in a, in a massive fashion, at least not that I can recall. And, and let's use birtherism as an example. You said something interesting about how he knew 
that there was this segment, and I think it was a substantial segment mm -hmm. of the Republican or conservative, whatever you want to call it, base uh, that was very suspicious of Barack Obama's background. And, and, and to be frank, part of it, I think, was Obama's fault. I think Obama actually played into this uh, and, and allowed some of this stuff to linger because he thought, erroneously, it was good for, for See, his... And that's the key. When Trump is gaslighting someone, he makes it almost impossible for them to respond in a positive way. And in fact, they often respond in ways that exit on because they think, oh, Donald Trump is doing something so loathsome, this will certainly backfire on him. And that was exactly the case with birtherism. You probably remember when all this is coming out, the DNC was uh, selling coffee mugs saying about the birth certificate. And keep in mind, Donald Trump made Barack Obama produce the birth certificate. Right. You know, right. he actually was the person to make Barack Obama do that. So they did respond. They did try to make mockery of it. And they thought, oh, well, this just proves how stupid Donald Trump is. When, in fact, Donald Trump made Barack Obama produce the papers that a lot of people wanted to see. Right, and, and that's why he's able to declare, quote-unquote, victory, even though in, in reality he was... The papers proved he was a U.S. citizen. It's right. incredible. Right, right. No, he, <laughs> it, it should be a moment of ignominy that would destroy anybody else's life or career, and they would never be heard from again. But with Trump, he can actually, to his people, declare victory, uh, even by, by lying further, not just about Barack Obama, but also about Hillary Clinton, because they eat it up because they wanted a fighter. But let, I want to go back to... Here, the, I just want to we'll pause on that for a second. He is excellent at putting people in a box that they are uncomfortable with. Comfortable with. with Obama, it was birtherism. He did it to Jeb Bush about 9-11 trutherism and the responsibility that his brother had over Iraq. Um, he did it with Hillary Clinton about Bill Clinton's infidelity. Again, these are topics most other politicians would never think about approaching, but he goes all in. And oftentimes the targets are so intimidated that they end up making mistakes. And this is why gaslighting works, because it's such an all-in, intimidating, super offensive tactic that it makes him look strong to his supporters. So they say, well, okay, so what that he's being rude? He's operating from a position of strength, because right. you do have to be a very strong person Right. to undertake this well, or stuff. pretend pretend to be um and and i, I want to get to that point as well because i think that was the biggest mistake that uh, his republican opponents made in the uh, 2016 primary campaign but again i, I want to make sure we get to all this but let's go back to something you said about how he understood that a large segment of the population wanted this within the conservative movement one of the things amanda and, and this is true of birtherism but there was true of other things as well that surprised me about trump is that here's a guy who's a lifelong Manhattan Democrat, a liberal, and yet he has seemingly understood the Republican base better, and, and frankly, in a far more cynical fashion, than lifelong Republicans have. Do you agree with that? And, and if you do, how, how do you explain that? Well, I disagree in the fact that he understood it better than anyone else. Here's the thing. I could see a lot of those tendencies play out from my vantage point as a staffer for Senator Jim DeMint and Senator Ted Cruz. Right. But the impulse was always to tamp down those inclinations. Well, didn't people like us underestimate it also, Amanda? Didn't oh, we? Yeah, I underestimated it. But 
I tell a story in the book about when birtherism started to come up during the first Obama administration. You know, I'd go to these Tea Parties events hosted by places like Freedom Works, and these LaRouche fringe lefties would come in with these posters of Obama as Hitler talking about birtherism. And we would push them the heck out. You know, like, people like me were trying to police that. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump took the opposite approach by encouraging it and bringing it out. I'm just amazed. Yeah, he was more successful, but... I, I still don't think that was the right thing to do. No, no, no. I'm not defending yeah, yeah, yeah. it. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is I've been amazed that he was able to understand the weaknesses, the vulnerabilities yeah. within the Republican base better than lifelong Republicans. Now, I was not shocked that he was able to be as successful as he was. I didn't think he was going to win the whole thing. But, the, I mean, within days of him announcing, my hair was on fire because I realized, uh-oh, mm. this is bad news. we got too many candidates. He's, he's got that birtherism base. And that is, those people are going to, those people are crazy. They're going to stick with him. The immigration issue, he's the only one that's going to appeal to these people mm-hmm. on this. And, and so this was, this was, and I have been somebody who for a very long time has been exceedingly disappointed with what I call the, the conservative establishment infrastructure. I'm not talking about like, you know, the Mitt Romneys of the world. I'm talking more like the CPACs of the world, right? Mm-hmm. I had a very, very bad experience as a, uh, as a co-sponsor of CPAC back in 2009 when I did my movie Media Malpractice, how Obama got elected. It really opened my eyes uh, to what a bunch of frauds a lot of the people in the conservative movement are and how vulnerable this movement was to a coup d'etat uh, or, or a rebellion, a takeover. And, and frankly, CPAC played a role in this by allowing Trump to pay them to, to get speaking spots for a couple of years so that he could pretend to have uh, you know conservative bona fides. And so it didn't shock me that he was able to, to, to create this rebellion uh, and to create this coup, especially with so many different uh, candidates that he was running against. And you only need, let's face it, you know, in that situation, 20, 25, 30 percent is a huge number yeah. in such a large uh, primary. I'm curious, as it, you saw it happening, were you surprised? Uh, and in retrospect, should you have been surprised by what you saw happen in 2016? Well, you're right to focus in on the fact that 17 people were running. And I've always maintained that the biggest lesson from the 2016 Republican primaries is that having that many candidates running is not actually the sign of a strong, vibrant party. It's a complete sign of breakdown and disunity. That's one point. But when I saw Trump happening... A, the first point was that the Republican Party establishment, quote-unquote, did not understand the anti-Washington fever that was raging through the country. They were completely immune to it. They missed the Tea Party. They missed everything. And so that was frustrating as someone who came from the Demet Cruz world. So I knew Jeb Bush never had a chance. Right. Um, even though, you know, the media world thought he was the most qualified candidate because he had sucked up the most money and most infrastructure. What I did not think would happen was that as Trump was crushing the rest of the field and knocking, you know, the more elite candidates like Jeb Bush and Chris Christie out, that so many people in the upper party establishment would just walk away and let Trump take it rather than rallying behind a candidate like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. 
you make they it just inc- walked away and let it happen. You make a really important point that I there's so many things that have happened in the last almost three years that I go, wow, I never would have imagined that would have not only happened, but happened so easily. Mm-hmm. And I and I use the term coup. This was a coup. I don't know. I think it was a surrender. Well, that's what I'm saying. There yeah, was no, same, there was yeah, never, it's the same. I'm not, yeah, you're there, right. there was never, there was never a moment. Everyone kept saying, we're not going to die on this hill. We're not going to die on this hill. We're not going to die on this mm-hmm. hill. And then no one died on any hill. There was yep. never, there was never a moment. All right, this is it. We're going to die on this hill. Well, consider uh, the fact, and I think this is pretty gross. When Trump was going to get the nomination, people who were most upset that he was going to get it, like a John Kasich, Jeff Flake, Jeb Bush, didn't even bother to go to the convention to say anything. They just stayed home, washing their hair, mowing the lawn. And that, you know, you're not even going to try to fight at that moment for your party. You're just going to say, here's the keys to the castle. You can have it. To me, that was pretty sad. It was amazing, and and it is sad, uh, and and I'm not shocked by much, but even I was shocked that there would not even. I didn't think they were going to be able to win, and maybe that's what happened is that they realized they couldn't win this battle. So why die? You know, yeah, that was certainly a prevailing theory is that he's not going to win. We'll pick up the pieces and have a rebirth against President Hillary, which is always good for Republicans. Oh, I think that was part of it. No, there was, was, there was a lot of elements of the perfect storm here where because Hillary was presumed to, to be a sure bet against him, everyone thought, okay, this is a short-term loss for a long-term gain. Uh, and, and then, of course, the other thing is, and let's face it, people are cowards uh, by nature, and political people are really cowardly. Yeah, and- but even, even I, I had never understood how risk-adverse people would be. Even now, you see it in the media, um, Republicans trying to play both sides and be for Trump and explain what he really meant. And, you know, in the book, I go through all these circuit tickets and tricks that people use on TV to try to defend Trump. But the unwillingness to have any kind of confrontation that may, may even in the tiniest sense put your career in jeopardy oh, yeah. is stunning. No, no, no. The, 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 that's what I'm saying. The, the, the amount of cowardice, whether it's in po- political world or the media world, has been um, amazing. I have written extensively about how the conservative media uh, sold out and why they did. And, and frankly, that didn't surprise me at all because we uh, one of the major elements of the perfect storm in all this is that the, 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 the elements of the conservative media, specifically talk radio and, mm-hmm. and the Internet, uh, they had a situation where their business model was broken at the exact same time when Trump came in as a savior because Trump provided content and ratings yep. and, and that's what they desperately needed. And so they can, a lot of them convinced themselves. I think some also just went along incredibly cynically. I, I would like to believe that Rush Limbaugh now doesn't believe a damn thing he says, but I don't even know anymore uh, because now I'm, now I'm faced to, with the reality that maybe I misinterpreted Rush for 25 years. Uh, and uh, I'm curious, was there somebody in particular in, in the conservative media world in, in that sellout to Trump that surprised Amanda Carpenter? Sean Hannity. Really? Listen, Sean Hannity has always been the GOP talking points guy. Got that. But when 
he would have on Donald Trump and just let the most wild things go by completely unchallenged. And that's not even the main point, but at this point, I wonder if we have state-run media or a media-run state. And Sean Hannity is at the top of the list, maybe for running both at this point. Oh, I agree with that. I'm just not that surprised because I never had a lot of uh, faith in Sean. I agree that he has... Well, just the level that it's gone to, I would say. Oh, no, there's no question he has... It's gone to a comical level. Yeah, and I guess it, I didn't observe him during the Bush administration, but I doubt it, he, he championed George Bush to the level that he champions Donald Trump. No, but, um, but I mean, I, I'm convinced now, especially with the Michael Cohen revelations, that there's something, even today, that we don't know yet. About oh, there's why, a ton we don't know. Uh, about, <laughs> about why Sean is as beholden, because it is, it's comical. It's not just... You know, I, it's way beyond. I get you're invested in this guy because you vouched for him. He's your buddy. He was good for ratings. This all turned out well, and now you need to. You can't accept that it might have been a bad idea. I get that's a huge part of this. People become invested in the narrative. Yeah, well, I mean, people are very invested in the Russia investigation. I mean, conservative media is very invested in the fact that there is nothing to see here. No collusion happened whatsoever. <sighs> and are very invested in Trump's counter-narrative that this is a deep state coup conducted by bad actors who didn't want to see Donald Trump to be president. All right, well, let's, let's talk... a powerful narrative. Let's talk about that for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, in, in, light of, in, in light of the book, Gaslighting America, and why we love it when Trump lies to us. Because uh, this got on my nerves just today. You know, because today is one year of Mueller uh, anniversary, uh, the investigation, and of course Trump was tweeting, you know, witch hunt, no collusion. And one, can we make one note on that? I was listening to Rush Limbaugh the other day because I, I listen to a lot of talk radio, and I was absolutely floored. He was talking about Watergate, and he was upset that people kept making Watergate comparisons to the Russia investigation. And he's sort of just tossing these comments to his listeners that there was really nothing to that. Nixon didn't know what was going on. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Well. I mean, it, we had it on the tapes. It, you know, he was subpoenaed for it. It went to the Supreme Court. That led to his resignation. And so, I mean, the things that are just blindly tossed in well, with no thought or consideration to history. And I'm not a historian. Okay, but I can tell you what Watergate was about, but, and but I can tr- tell you uh, Nixon was the bad guy in it. But, you know? but, but Amanda, to your point of your book, truth no longer matters anymore. I mean, you could, it's whatever your audience wants to hear. Cur- truth used to be gold. You, truth used to be the currency of the realm. Now, popularity with stupid people is the currency of the realm. And I mean that, unfortunately, well, I mean no that seriously. Everybody's accountable to clicks and ratings right. and subscriptions right. and not editors and being factual. Right. That's just the reality of the media environment. Oh, it's and totally broken. This is why I say we love it when he lies. A big part is that the media, because the media does love it when he lies because it gives them lots of content. Right. Um, this crazy stuff he says gives them the ability to produce these narratives of you know, that take a long time to insult the listeners, and it's a lot of fun well, well, for a lot of people. Now, Amanda, you're on CNN, CNN a lot, and CNN, of course, is definitely one of those outlets that, that would be under the 
classification of loving it when he lies because that's a, a great content for CNN and CNN uh, and I'm all for it. I, I think lying is horrendous and if there's one thing I, I dislike most about Trump it's the fact that he's untethered to the truth and that he's he's now making that part of American establishment that that's accepted now everywhere. Yeah, you know what's Did, funny? Uh, With uh, my book title I, I never have to explain that he lies. People are always hung up we don't love it. Right. Nobody says there, there's no debate over the fact that he well, lies. Okay, <laughs> I agree with that, and I was curious about the love it because I don't no, love I it. Know, I know, I know. But 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 let's go back to CNN for a second. So mm-hmm. so you mentioned that the media loves it when he lies because it provides content. I'm curious, very curious, as someone who is uh, on camera a lot, and I know a lot of conversations happen because I've been involved with them when, when I've done television, off uh, off the screen and in the green room and what have you. Do you, my sense of this, Amanda, is that the media is in a time warp uh, on this issue of lying. And they think that lying is still the, the holy grail. If we catch them in a lie, mm-hmm. that that actually still has meaning because it used to. And, and that they're playing by a set of rules now, that I'm talking about the media, that no longer exists because Trump has successfully desensitized us all to, to lying that it has no impact anymore. Do you agree with that? Well, I think the media... The media's fact-checking was in trouble long before Trump. And in the book, I talk about the fact-checks that I would get in the Ted Cruz office with these reporters from these Pulitzer Prize-winning places demanding that we produce these long, detailed answers on the record about one time a joke that Ted Cruz made. It had to do with, um, oh, how can we get the border funded? We'll send you know, 10,000 IRS agents there. And the fact checker wanted to know, where did we come up with the figure for 10,000 IRS agents? And, you know, I just had to say it was a joke. And the number was actually around 9,000. <laughs> and we got a lying, lying, pants on fire rating, which frankly really bothered the office that he would get these ratings. But we would get fact checked, I mean, honestly, and the most ridiculous things. There was another joke. Right. There's two jokes that we got fact checked on that were clearly made in jest but would burn up, honestly, five hours of my staff time just trying to get them to understand humor. No, they're, the they're incompetent. When Ted Cruz would talk about how there's a death to America Day in Iran, um, which they kind of chant and do it. It was an offhand comment he made in a Hugh Hewitt interview. And this fact checker, another from these Tony outlets, was saying, well, there's no actual death to America holiday. And I tried to explain to him this is an annual thing they do every year. No, it's not on a federal calendar. And, of course, we got a lying, lying, pants on fire. And so... I agree with you that they're incompetent, but I'm curious, though, Amanda, have the rules changed so much now that the media doesn't even realize they're playing by rules that don't exist on Trump's lying? Yeah, that may be true. I don't think it's only because of the lying, though. I think it's because the media writ large is forced into a completely reactionary state that actually gives Trump all of the control over the programming, the websites, etc. When you're constantly reacting to what he said, he's, he's, he's driving the bus. Well, and, and to that point, he gets caught in a lie. And, and I still think lying might matter to some people. It doesn't matter to his base. And he gets away with things that other people could never dream of mm-hmm. getting away with. I mean, my God, Bush 41 got destroyed over one, you know, oh, read my lips, no new taxes. Okay. I mean, that's nothing compared to what Trump does before 9 a.m. But the, 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 reality, the reality here is that 
because of the fact that he lies so much, we are desensitized to it. And to, to your point about uh, how it works to his advantage, let me give you what, how, how I uh, look at this. The media still is very hesitant to call, especially a president of the United States, a liar, even though they know, every one of them knows he's a pathological liar. And so what happens here is that um, the media says that uh, two plus two equals four. And Trump says, no, 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 no. Like with Russia, two plus two equals a hundred. Let me tell you, it's a hundred. Right. And, and then the media, because they're afraid, they'll say, well, maybe two plus two equals 50. Well, who wins in that game? Well, Trump wins in that, that game. Trump, Trump forces people to take sides. And speaking of uncomfortable boxes, the media does not want to be put in the box of calling President Trump a liar or not. The second they start calling him a liar, even if he is, he turns around and says, fake news, tells all your supporters, don't believe them. You can't get over the Trump hate in your heart to see reality. That happens again and again and again. And he uses his own uh, her horrendousness to his advantage because, because there are so many things that are legitimate fodder for media attacks that his supporters tune it out because they think it's not possible for a president of the United States to be this bad. The media has Trump derangement syndrome. Yeah. When, when in fact... He's benefiting from the fact that he, he, he has screwed up and lied so many times that by the time, I'm a big believer in this fragmented media world, that it takes at least three or four days for a news story to make any kind of an impact. It has to be almost 24-7 for three or four days before the, it, it reaches critical mass. Well, nothing can reach critical mass with him because he's on to the next lie or the next outrage or the next story or the next distraction. Yeah, so and that's the part I want people to understand is that the chaos is an intentional. The chaos is a form of control. He is comfortable with it. We are not. And that is why it works. All right. Now, I mentioned the Russian thing. So today is the the anniversary of the Mueller investigation. And, of course, he's still out there with witch hunt, fake news. And by the way, it's going to be hilarious to me if he's exonerated uh, in a witch hunt investigation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that'll be hilarious, right? I thought it was a witch hunt, um, much like he won a rigged election. He won a, an election that was rigged against him by getting but fewer votes. And how he protects his upside at all times. Right. And the rig narrative is prevalent. And he'll, right. trust me, he'll trot that out again once the election's coming around in 2018 and 2020. That's what he used to uh, soul, console himself when he didn't win awards during his TV days. Uh, the Emmys were rigged against me. Right. That's what he said. Even when Mitt Romney lost the 2012 election, it was rigged against him. Right. It's his fallback. Okay, so so today the, the, one of the narratives is, because we've now just learned, and this just, just drives me crazy. I'm wondering, Amanda, how, how I can psychologically deal with this. So the narrative in the right-wing media about this revelation now that the FBI had this, uh, what was it, Operation Hurricane? I don't know, that wasn't the name of it. But uh, it's a, Crossfire Hurricane. Cr Crossfire Hurricane, right? From a song I actually okay. don't know of. But okay. Everybody knows the Rolling Stones song, apparently. I, I don't either, so we're in good company. So cool. so anyway, so so the so when I read the, the Crossfire Hurricane story, I go, holy crap, first of all, they, they knew a hell of a lot more than they ever let on during the election, and they 
bent over backwards to protect Trump, even telling the New York Times, or at least... Uh, at which one point, Trump's rhetoric did successfully intimidate the FBI right. during but, the campaign. But So, so, so th this rhetoric works, without a doubt. Okay, but just to finish the, the, this whole point, because it's so upside down, the revelation of this, to me proves so many things. First, it further substantiates the seriousness of this Russia investigation, but it also shows the absurdity, the absurdity that, that James Comey is writing letters about some emails found in Anthony Weiner's laptop 10 days before the, the election, which I believe was the, the reason why Trump ended up winning, uh, even though, you know, 10 days or eight, nine, whatever days later, he, he basically said, oops, sorry, never mind. Uh, that was nothing in comparison to what the FBI was onto with Trump. And yet the narrative in the right-wing media, man, and I'm sure you know this, is that this is somehow proof that the FBI was out to get Trump from the beginning, even though they clearly protected him during the campaign. I, I, I can't make well, my brain, I can't deal with this. The FBI should ever disclose when an investigation is opened into the public. In the Comey case, he disclosed in July that it was closed, done, over, and then he felt an obligation to tell the public that it wasn't over because they were reopening it. Okay, right. that's a whole question. But the whole counter-narrative, I just, I, it stuns me that an objective person can't look at the chronology of these events and how many contacts there were with the Russians right. and how many times they lied about it and how Trump championed the Russian hack material on the campaign trail and how resistant they were to sanctions imposed by right. the Obama administration right. in retaliation for the cyber warfare Russians conducted during the election. I don't know how you can look at those things and not and then not at least be curious. Right, but 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 I want the point I'm trying to make here, not doing a very good job with it, is I, the counter narrative is so absurd, and yet people that you and I used to to believe in and trust, and people who used to be our audiences, have bought it hook, line, and sinker. They think the FBI was out to get Trump, is out to get Trump, that there's this deep state, that the intelligence agencies are trying to, to create a coup d'etat. How did this happen? People want to feel better about their decision to support and vote for Donald Trump. Truly. They want media figures who will explain these events and reassure them that they're doing the right thing, yep. made the right choice to save their country from the liberals. Uh, in the book, I talk about how much terror motivated uh, election decision-making processes. There's all this talk about economic anxiety. and Yeah, that's part of it. I think terror was the big one because the most influential piece of rhetoric in the 2016 election was the Flight 93 essay, which was written by Michael Anton, who later became a national security advisor. And you probably remember that essay, but it made the case that I did not understand. I did not understand it at all. And, and, and frankly, I'm wondering whether or not it's one of those things people have, in retrospect, looked at and go, "Aha! That was what gave the Trump voter the the something to oh, hang on to." Hit. Rush Limbaugh spent at least an hour on it, saying how this sticks it to the Never Trumpers and yeah. how you better get on board because the yeah. case made in that essay was that the country is going down. Yeah. We're in a plane 
Yeah. Uh, it's being hijacked by Hillary Clinton. <laughs> She's taking it to a nosedive. Yeah. We're all going to die. But if you storm the cockpit with Donald Trump, you might have a chance to live. So. Yeah. I just never thought, I just never bought that. I, maybe I'm giving people too much credit. I'm like, wait a minute. I looked at it the opposite, almost the opposite way. I thought, okay, uh, we screwed up in our uh, nominating process. We, we nominated the wrong guy. Uh, we have Congress. Maybe we can deal with one term of a, a basically impotent Hillary Clinton, beat her when she runs for re-election, uh, have probably larger majorities in the Congress because that's what happens to an incumbent president, especially one unpopular, and and maybe we'll be better off in, in eight years than we currently are. That's what I, the way I looked no, at it. I think, and, no, I don't. I don't think that's the way it hit. No, I mean, even people that I know that were. No, no. Clearly, I was in a very tiny minority. I'm not suggesting. <laughs> what I'm, I'm just no, talking. But, I mean, Hillary Clinton was someone who had she had lied for years about many of her communications, kept them secret from the public, uh, got tied up in all the Benghazi stuff. The fear that was induced during the Obama administration over the threat of radical Islamic terrorism was very real. Um, you know, people getting their heads cut off in Libya, the Coptic Christians, the Americans, the Englishmen. I, I think all that was very real and compelling because any time someone raised a question about the threat of terror, uh, members of the Obama administration would play it down and say, well, terror's not rising. We haven't been attacked. This, you know, essentially making you feel like it was a silly fear. And meanwhile, think anybody that gets on a plane in America thinks about 9-11 before takeoff. No, I'm so not, that, look, had a, that had an effect. Well, to me, the effect that it had mostly was that the intellectual, and I use it in quotes, <laughs> elite of what used to be the conservative movement needed an excuse for getting on board with Trump, yeah, and sure. they and they used that as an excuse. They yeah, used that as the galvanizing. Yeah, they used yeah. that as the intellectual reasoning behind. Yeah, even Steve Bannon w would say that essay was the birthplace of. Uh, intellectual Trumpism, well, which is a pretty dire spot. It's an right? oxymoron like, well, if I've die, ever heard one in my maybe life. Maybe you'll live with Trump. Right. Yay. Yeah. Okay. Now, <laughs> now, Amanda, in, in our remaining moments here, because there's so many things I wanted to ask you about the, the book. In the book, you talk about something else that happened during the campaign that directly related to you. Uh, and that was part of the National Enquirer's mm -hmm. effort to destroy Ted Cruz, a guy for whom you used to work. Uh, by the way, I'm curious... How do you feel about Ted Cruz these days with the considering what he endured, the ignominy that he endured at the hands of Donald Trump and the fact that he's now basically kissed up to him at every possible opportunity? Have you been surprised and do you still have the same respect that you used to have for Ted Cruz? Um, I could never be a politician if that's what it takes. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take that as a no. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna take that as a very polite. Yeah, I'm not writing his speeches in Time Magazine essays anymore. Okay, well, good for you. All right, well said, by the way. Yeah, that was actually a very political answer for someone who could <laughs> ever be a politician. But okay, so let's go back to what, what I was referring to. So you used to work for Ted Cruz. The National Enquirer uh, ran a series of pieces that even at the time were obviously uh, as part of a, a, an organized campaign to help Donald Trump, uh, where they're going after Ted Cruz, and they go after Ted Cruz on this issue of him having affairs. And you were one of the women who they 
sort of kind of uh, identified. I guess they used your photo, but they blurred it out. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, it was very crafty how they did it. All right. Okay. So, but it was, it, it disrupted your life in a, in a huge way. Uh, and of course it would turn out to all be bogus. And this to me is a classic uh, Trump situation where at the time we all suspected because we knew the connection between Trump and the guy who owns the National Enquirer. Although that's become a lot more apparent now. Hasn't no, it? right. Well, that's what I'm getting yeah. at. I mean, cool. hold on, because this is important. See, to me, this is a classic Trump. He does something that smells to high heaven. We're we're 90% sure this is a complete setup, that this is, this is the National Enquirer working as an arm of the Trump campaign, which if we had known that for sure in the early stages of the 2016 prim- primaries, I think would have had an impact. I really do. Maybe I'm naive, but I got to believe that, that that would have been shocking to people. Well, to your point, we now know, we now know 100% that the National Enquirer was paying his Miss Trump's mistresses in a catch and kill operation, working as an arm, as a dirty arm of the, of the Trump campaign. And you were a target of that. Now that is, does that not incense you? It's got to incense you more than it senses me. What's your reaction to that? Well, the thing that I keep coming back to is that after I, was smeared and a Trump supporter confronted me live on the air about it and that both campaigns had to issue statements about it. Sarah Huckabee Sanders denied any knowledge about it and then said, for the sake of my family, I should sue the National Enquirer. Knowing the payments that the National Enquirer has arranged for women now, how they bought the rights to their story and sought to shut them up, I thank my lucky stars I never considered suing the National Enquirer because I wanted to own the rights to my story and be able to speak about this whenever I damn well please. Well, good for you, and and I and I applaud that. But with regard to the the subject of your book and lying, mm-hmm. see to me this is again how Trump gets away with it because at the time no one had the balls because we didn't have quite enough proof. I said we only had 90% proof that this this was going on with the National Enquirer. So when it could have mattered, nobody really made that, that charge stick. Well, there, also, it, it was, to get to Trump's formula, it was one of these politically toxic narratives that no one would really touch because it was so slimy right. and so dirty and untrue. And so that also allowed it to fester a while, and it allowed it to take off, and no one was going to talk about the National Enquirer. The thing that made it a story, and the way I got boxed in, the way all these people get gaslit get boxed in, is that someone forced me to respond to it on live TV when I was doing my job, right. doing what I normally do. But And so I, was, I had to fight my way out of it. And when Trump does this kind of gaslighting, he makes it very difficult for people to respond. And I think that was one of the hardest ways anyone's had to respond to an accusation like that. And then from there, I had to fight for my reputation and career. And, and I'm not trying to diminish the, the, your angle on this, but mm-hmm. I'm, ta- I'm looking at more the big picture yeah. of the fact that we now, what we now know, see, what frustrates me most is now we know 100% 
that the National Enquirer was an it was an arm of the Trump campaign, and no one cares. And that and Trump knows this. I think this is something he absolutely thinks about. He knows that by the time you can catch him in a lie, it'll be too late because no one will care. Either the moment will have passed, the circumstances will have changed, he will have won, everyone rallies around the winner, and no one cares about the past. Do you, do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And that's part of the reason I felt so compelled to put this in a book, because he keeps doing the same thing. And everyone thinks that one of Donald Trump's biggest strengths is how unpredictable he is. And Gaslighting America shows that that's not the case. He keeps doing the same things over and over again. And once you learn to recognize how he keeps playing us, he keeps playing the Republicans, playing the Democrats, playing the media, maybe we won't get played anymore. So how should the media respond to Donald Trump based upon your formula for combating gaslighting? In the broadest terms, you have to break the dependency on him. He is a manipulator. This is like an abusive relationship. Your therapist would tell you to get out of it. Okay, we can't get a divorce. He's president of the United States. But got to stop reacting to everything that he says and produce stories and narratives, whether you're a member of the media or a candidate, that aren't dependent on what Trump says and does so that we are constantly in this defensive, reactionary posture that gives him all of the control. That's, I think, easier said than done, especially Absolutely. because... Because especially because he's president, and that's why right. people say, well, is he going to stop? No, it's going to be much harder. Right. He is the establishment. He has all the power. He has Fox News. He's going to launch Trump TV, you know? And he's right. For he... our sensor, sensory capabilities is on. And he knows... And I think he's absolutely right when he says that the media may overtly hate him, but they need him. Uh, and I think they will actually, if it comes down to it in 2020 and it's close, uh, I would not be surprised if, if they uh, take it easy on him and, and allow him to win, especially if his opponent is, is someone who's rather boring. Everyone uh, should remember that the Democrats wanted Trump to be the leader of the Demo uh, Republican Party. Oh, I know. And this is the thing I think is most loathsome about politics, is that everyone wants the worst of the other side to prevail to make it easier for themselves to win. Yeah. And that's something that's rotten in our country, not with Donald Trump. Oh, no, there's no question that, that Trump is is a symptom as well as a mm -hmm. cause um, of a lot of problems. And, and frankly, I think a lot of them in our, are in our media. I think our media is completely, totally 100% broken, and he understands how to manipulate it better than anybody else. And and I think that that's why he's going to be formidable if he decides to, to run for re-election. By the way, do you have Oh, he's going to run. There's no way he's walking, around, walking away from the power he has. Mm -mm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the, the most logical and, and likely scenario. But I, I, I think, though, Amanda, that he might just decide he has very little to gain by running again. I mean, he... he I just can't imagine it. I, a lot of people say, won't he resign? Won't he get no, sick of this? No, he will not resign. what? Being the center of the universe? No, no, he's no. not He's not going to resign. Uh, he's not going to do something that that can allow, can prevent him from declaring victory. I, I think there's a chance. I don't know what the percentages are. But I think there's a chance he decides, I made America great again. You're welcome. And uh, an accomplished. Right, exactly. And uh, <laughs> and and goodbye. Because, because let's face it, if... He, 
uh, if I don't know who the hell the Democrats could put up against him. I, that's the thing. I know. I, I, I don't see. The, the only person I think that comes close is Terry McAuliffe. Really? Really? I think he's got the right demeanor. He's got the Clinton baggage, but okay. No, the, but I think he has the right, of all the people in the field, the right personality. See, uh, I, I don't think all he right. would have any, Name any a better one. Oh, no, I, I can't. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know who I think would beat him as a Democrat? Mark Cuban would beat him. Oh, yeah, if he would do it. He's got, he's got a lot of Me Too. I mean, I don't know of anything for sure, but well, I, I've heard about his Wildcat days. <laughs> you, you think against Trump that that's going to be yeah, an issue? Right. Okay, touche. <laughs> um, no, I like Mark Cuban. I think he's got the right stances on it. No, because he, 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 I think in order to beat a celebrity, you need a celebrity. And, 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 beat, and to beat a rich guy, you need a real rich guy. And, and oh, Frank, man. and, and I, I actually... get some more Texans back in the White House. But, but I, I, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention before we, we run out of time here, Amanda, is... I because I referenced it earlier and we never really got to it. I think the biggest mistake that everybody has made, the Republican candidates, the media, everybody, and it's really baffled me as to why this is the case, that everyone gave with did with Trump was they accepted the notion that he's rich. That is the core of his power. If without yeah. the perception that he is a billionaire, a lot of what he does looks pathetic but because he's a alpha male billionaire allegedly it's perceived as strength when in fact it's desperation and i gotta tell you and i've i you know i, I my father has dealt with him in the past uh, on some financial uh, deals and i've watched the money very carefully and i think the money is a big part of this russian investigation and i've written about it extensively i don't believe he is rich at all i don't want to see the tax returns well, I, I would love to see the tax returns. How he got away with not releasing them when he promised that he would is just mind-blowing to me. I think it's, it's an indication of just how impotent the news media has really become, even more impotent than they, they realize and why he's going to survive this Russian... He's going to survive this Russian investigation, by the way. I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, the FBI is not going to haul him out of the White House in handcuffs, which I was saying long before Rudy Giuliani said... If he was assured that he wouldn't be indicted. Well, I, That's I, just a fact of the matter. I think Mueller's going to come back with a very damning report. I don't know to what extent, but I think it's going to have a lot of very damaging stuff in there uh, with that, with rational people like you and me going, oh, my God, I cannot believe this guy is president of the United States. And I don't think it will have much impact at all because uh, I think the Democrats are not – If even if they take the House, they're not going to have a nar- large enough margin – to pull off, they might be able to impeach him, but it'll never go anywhere in the Senate. Yep, uh, and, I agree. And it'll actually maybe even work to, to Trump's advantage because it'll... Yep, and say now it's over. Yeah, I think, without a doubt, Trump would dare uh, the Senate to convict him. Yeah, which He's will, not going to resign in shame. Which will never happen. Mitch McConnell will never... <laughs> We'll never let that happen. And uh, and I think that it, the, bo- the bottom line of this is we're going to be very, very damaged as a country. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've always felt like, you know, look, are, are there some things about the Trump presidency that are better than what have happened with Hillary? Sure, absolutely. Uh, but I just don't think they're going to be worth it in the long run. I think well, 10, 20 years from that now. All of the heartache is so unnecessary. Ugh. It's all unnecessary oh. and he creates the damage and the chaos voluntarily well, i know you were a ted cruz guy up until uh, uh somewhat mm-hmm. recently okay woman i should say um but you know to me i i think uh, uh marco rubio or scott walker would have beaten uh, hillary clinton incredibly easily in fact trump won with scott walker's map 
I mean, that was Scott yeah. Walker's map. Uh, and can you imagine it right now if we had a, 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 a Scott Walker or Rubio or a combination? I mean, I think they would have been a great combo uh, together or, or maybe a Nikki Haley or whatever. If that oh, was Nikki Haley, my if, dark horse. If, if that was if that was the, uh, the situation and, and right now. That. You know, she's my savior. <laughs> comes down to anything. Well, uh, we'll see. What, I mean, I'll be very curious to see what she does. But look, I mean, it's just it's just a shame what we could have had right now. We could have had Republican Congress with a young, uh, you know, yes, conservative. This should be an awesome time to be a Republican. Yes, it this should, should be. be awesome, and, and it's only awesome for the yeah. twenty people I, I, paying twenty dollars for a hamburger at the Trump. Hotel lobby. So last question for you, Amanda. How do you get through this uh, psychologically? Have you lost friends, by the way? Have you lost media friends, people you thought were hardcore conservatives that turned out to be frauds? Has this been difficult for you personally, having to deal with it? Because it's been very difficult for me personally. Well, I I mean, in terms of the career I thought I was going to have, absolutely. I've absolutely taken myself out of the running for all kinds of media opportunities. I love working at CNN. Love working at CNN. Um, but right now I don't have a writing job. I did the book, but you know my dream of writing for a place like the Wall Street Journal is essentially off the table, given that the position the Wall Street Journal has, and you can apply that to any number of conservative outlets where the pro-Trump line has been enforced. I mean, because of this book, I, I, there's places I'll never get an interview where I was formally welcomed, and that's fine. I love working in the media. I love working at CNN. I love conservative media, um, but what my career will continue to look like, I have no idea. But I also know that you can't be good if you can't be genuine. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to do this if I can't do it honestly. And so, you know, well, I threw the Gaslighting America book out there because that's what I honestly feel, and that's the story I wanted to tell. I got it out. I'm happy if I find a do- job in a completely different industry after this. It's all good. How well, good for you. Um, how has the conservative uh, pro-Trump media responded to the book, and and when uh, when will you be doing uh, Fox News Channel? <laughs> um, I haven't gotten any calls. No calls from Fox News Channel. That's amazing. Uh, how about the the rest of the uh, the the state-run uh, conservative media? How have they treated the book? Um, it, it's been pretty quiet. Is that what you expected would be the case? That's about what I expected. It's pathetic, isn't it? They don't even want to debate this. I mean, you would think that they would want to have uh, an honest, uh, robust, interesting debate. But that's kind of just been how it's. I mean, honestly, with you know, I have friends, and here's the thing: I have friends who have gone to places in the Trump administration who are happy. They don't report directly to Trump. They're doing work in areas they care about, and I'm happy for them that they found that. But they. They're not pleased with the things I'm saying and doing because it, in a way, undermines the work they're trying to do. Mm. And there's a tension there. And I understand that tension, but it's not going to change what I do. So I can be happy for them as they enjoy success, but I feel pretty strongly about the things I need to say and why I need to say them. Good for you. Amanda Carpenter, author of the book, Gaslighting America, Why We Love It When Trump Lies to Us. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time, and thanks for writing this book. Great, and thanks. I'm glad we connected. Hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Make sure that you just do two things I've all I've ever asked you to do. One, 
Make sure you uh, share this via social media, Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, what have you. And also uh, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps, if you're never Trump, you have a much easier time sleeping than if you're a Trump supporter, in my opinion. But I digress. If you're one of those people <laughs> who actually sleeps, do yourself a favor and listen to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.